So we are in Matthew chapter 21. We're going to read about 10 verses beginning in verse 12. In a very familiar passage and then a strange one to piggyback on top of that. If you follow along, Matthew chapter 21, verse 12. says this, And Jesus entered the temple, drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. They said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never heard or never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. And in the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive it if you have faith. This is God's Word. And I'm going to pray so I don't mess it up. Father God, we thank You for the Word You have given us. It is a grace. You have come down and You have left us, Father, a very clear picture and understanding of who You are and what we ought to do with our lives. And so I thank You for that. Your Word is alive and it is active and it is sharp. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that You will move. First, You'll move me out of the way and then You'll move in the hearts of those who are here. Move us to conviction if that is what we need or comfort if that is what is most needed right now. But lead us ultimately to the cross where we find hope and joy and meaning. It is in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen. So in chapter uh, 21, we have, again, as we said last week, we always have to understand what Matthew is doing here. And so beginning with chapter 21, which is very different than the first 20 chapters of this Gospel, Jesus is portrayed very differently than we have seen. He has previously been wandering around the hills in the wilderness of Galilee, away from uh, large uh, cities and, and, and really uh, almost uh, running away from crowds. Now we have Him uh, no longer hiding His identity, no longer avoiding crowds, no longer quieting the praises that reveal who He is. And, as we again saw last week, fulfilling the prophecy found in Zechariah chapter 9, which said that the King, the Messiah, would arrive on a donkey and walk into or ride into Jerusalem. Jesus does just that. And He intentionally reveals Himself in the most boldest of ways with thousands and perhaps millions of people, crowds surrounding Him, right under the nose of the Roman government, right in the heart of Jerusalem, He reveals Himself as the promised Son of David. And as they're 
crying out, Hosanna, save us, you are the king. Many expect the king to reclaim his rightful throne by force. And the crowds are probably surprised that Jesus first enters the temple before going into Pilate's palace, which he will go into Pilate's palace by the end of the day for a very different reason. Jesus entering the temple is very uh, deliberate, and he does without doubt intend to reclaim his throne, but entering the temple first reveals exactly what throne he intends to reign from and where his kingdom is going to be established, namely in the presence of God. Now, since the beginning of time, really, or beginning of what we'll just call religion, whether that be Christian religion or Eastern religion, whatever, man has always had temples and always had altars and always had holy places. Most, if not all, religions establish what we'll just call spiritual kind of spaces where they perform various ceremonies in order to appease or beseech or otherwise honor their various gods. And men do this, and by men I mean all men, mankind. They do this because they know, deep in their heart, they sense, all men do, that there's some sort of spiritual chasm between themselves and God. Temples were, therefore, kind of a tangible means to bridge that gap, usually with help of professional mediators, priests, pastors, shamans, whatever. But we know, as Romans 1 teaches us, that having exchanged the truth of God for a lie, the practices that they had became more and more perverse, and they only served to separate man from his Creator even more. Nevertheless, my point is that the underlying desire to bridge the relationship between man and God is genuine. That that gap is real. That there is a chasm. And in truth, our God, the one true God, also provided temples. Spaces by which the relationship could be mediated between Him and His people. And just to give you a little bit of history so you understand what is going on here with Jesus in this temple, after the exodus from Egypt, so we know by the end of the first book of the Bible in Genesis, Joseph, one of the sons of Jacob, who's named Israel, he's one of twelve sons, is reigning in Egypt and has saved Egypt from an incredible famine and saved his own family. He moves his whole family down there. They live in the land of Goshen. But over the years, hundreds of years, what Joseph did for Egypt is forgotten. And the people become so large that they become a threat to Egypt and they become enslaved under Egypt. Exodus is the story of God leading them out of Egypt, redeeming them from slavery through a man named Moses. And they take them out of Egypt through the Red Sea. They travel to the bottom of a mountain called Mount Sinai. And at that mountain is where God meets them in the most glorious and powerful way. And God formally, at this mountain, covenants with His people. He gives Moses the law to basically help an unholy people maintain a pure relationship with a holy God. 
It says this is the covenant. This is the way the marriage works. And God at that same place expresses His desire to dwell with them. And so He commands them to actually build a place to live for Him. For Him to live, I should say. Exodus 25 says it this way, And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst, that I may be in the midst of them with my people. And so he, the half the book of Exodus, after Exodus 19, is really a series of, of blueprints, of building plans to build this tabernacle for God to dwell in. And the last verses of the book of Exodus, the tabernacle has been built and set up, and we see the glory of God, quote, fill the tabernacle, literally, gloriously, powerfully. And it's through the various sacrifices for sin that men are able to dwell with God. And this tabernacle is portable, so the people get up, and they move around the wilderness. We see that in Numbers. And they put the tabernacle, set it up again, and they put all their tents around the tabernacle, and God's glory once again fills it. And as history unfolds, we see Joshua take the promised land, and, and eventually they get to a place where they want a king, and eventually we get to a man named David who becomes a man after God's own heart, king of Israel. And he desires to build a permanent house for the Lord. No more portable house. David looks at his own house, which he has, like, dang, i got a nice house. I should have a house for the Lord. And so he goes to the Lord and says, I want to build you a house. And the Lord says, thank you, but no thank you. In fact, he rejects his offer to build him a house, and he says, no, I don't want you to build you a house, but I'm going to establish your house. And I'm going to give you a kingdom forever. And your house will reign forever, but you're not going to actually build it. And his son, who becomes King Solomon, actually builds what is the first permanent temple. And after bringing the Ark of the Covenant, think Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? Where the glory of God dwells in the mercy seat where the blood is poured. After bringing the Ark, into the covenant, Ark of the Covenant into the temple, here's what it says in 1 Kings, that a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Again, just as happened in the tabernacle, the permanent temple now is filled with the glory of God. And this is where the relationship is mediated and, and the people are able to be in the presence of God and maintain this relationship with God. And so they do this for 400 years. For 400 years, they use this temple and the priests mediate the relationship between God and His people through sacrifices and all the different prayers that they are to offer until His people sin, which they had sinned often, but He's finally fed up and He raises up the Babylonians. A nation to spank His own nation, if you will. And the temple was destroyed that had been built. And the people are taken into exile. And eventually the Babylonians are spanked by the Persians. And God raises them up. And after seven years of being in exile, fulfilling a prophecy by Jeremiah, God in the most miraculous of ways moves in the heart of a pagan king to rebuild the 
temple. And he even pays for it. He sends back or calls the Israelites, invites them to go back and rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. And the story is recorded in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Most of the Israelites choose not to return because the city's decimated. They have good lives now. But there's a remnant that does return and they begin to clear what was the temple area of all the rubble. And they begin to rebuild the altar. And within months they had laid the foundation for the temple and then it abruptly stops. Their neighbors are hostile towards them. It becomes very difficult. And so they stop. Instead of fighting to rebuild, they just give up and they go back to building their own homes and dealing with their own private affairs. And then... A prophet shows up. Now, I don't know how much time everyone spends in the Old Testament. Oftentimes you look at the Old Testament as a bunch of disconnected stories that doesn't make a lot of sense, and I'll maybe read Genesis because that makes sense, but the rest of them, I don't know. Amos, Obadiah, what are those? Those are all different men that got raised up by God at different times to speak for Him. And one of these men named Haggai, which is a book in the Bible, God called to go and address His people and what had happened. And the prophet Haggai condemns them for building their own homes and not finishing God's. And he calls them to say, you need to repent and rebuild. And so they do. And then, two months later, another man is raised up by God. His name is Zechariah. There's a book of the Bible called that. And it is his words, well, God's words to his people through Zechariah, if we didn't have Zechariah, we'd think that God is only interested in building buildings and having places. But what Zechariah says, or God says through Zechariah, is that He wants His people to be ready to worship when the temple is built. He's not just interested in buildings and spaces and rituals. He's interested in worship. And so, through Zechariah, God warns His people not to make the same mistake that their fathers had, who ignored Him, and did their own thing. And he says, yes, rebuild, but also renew your covenant. Using this phrase, return to me. Rebuild the temple, but return to me. And then through a series of nine visions in the book of Zechariah, which are very confusing. You read them and you're like, what is going on? <clears throat> very artistic. Image rich. But through these visions, this is what God explains. God says, I'm going to return to you. That one day I'm going to return to Jerusalem. Personally. Same Zechariah says, I'm going to return personally on a donkey. And it will be a time when I dwell in the city and I'm going to defend the city and I'm going to rescue my people from their enemies and I'm going to cleanse them from their sin and I'm going to restore their prosperity forever. And then the last words of Zechariah, which I'm sure you've read often in your devotional time, the last words of Zechariah are, guess what? Well, you don't have to guess, I'll tell you. Verse 21 of chapter 14. On that day, there shall no longer be a traitor, T-R-A-D-E-R, in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. And we have Jesus cleansing the temple. Jesus cleansing the temple is not some random event of a revolutionary. I'm going to do something crazy to upset them. It is a well-conceived, planned out, intentional thing, a fulfillment of thousands of years of prophecy. It's calculated. 
The Jews should have expected a Messiah and did in some ways to purify the temple. That was part of it. His cleansing is prophetic. His cleansing is certainly revolutionary, but his cleansing is the one violent act of judgment that Jesus commits. And it's violent. Right? He walks in. You've got to get a picture of this. He disrupts everything. He walks in. He's overturning tables. He's deliberately disrupting what's going on, the business of the day. People are upset. People are angry. And the interesting thing to think about is that knowing that who Jesus is, He gets angry and yet He's without sin. He is forceful, dare I say, violent, and yet He is God-glorifying. He is rebuking. He is scolding. He is condemning. He is saying hard words and yet without sin and full of Scripture. We understand what Jesus is actually upset about. I think sometimes we imagine the court is full of just these kind of corrupt capitalists, these businessmen that are extorting the masses by selling t-shirts and Roman sports drinks. And that's not what's happening. Though it could be happening, though he might be upset about that, that's not the heart of what is the problem. You need to understand that the court is actually full of money changers and livestock and birds and other animals necessary for the increased population that's participating in the Passover festival. Remember, thousands, if not millions of people pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And they would be coming from foreign nations, but they wanted to come and make their sacrifices, so they have to come with foreign money and have to exchange that money so they could buy. And They had moved all the livestock and the, and the pigeons and the things needed for the sacrifices into the temple court to make it easier. Make it more efficient. What I think Jesus is upset about is not the fact that they're somehow extorting people, but that they have become experts at manufacturing a well-tuned, sacrificial experience, and they have forgotten the entire purpose of the sacrifice. Even though the temple had been built to maintain their purity, it was now making them very dirty. The sacrificial system had developed into something that was certainly not acceptable to God. And in many ways, the Jews had become so efficient in their religious rituals that they've actually ceased to worship. So good at what they do. And I've, as a pastor, obviously helping to lead a church, I had to ask myself questions about our church or any church for that matter and begin to ask whether we could get so good at the religious rituals that they actually hinder us from worship. When a church gets so professional, when the music gets so fine-tuned and the sermons are perfectly arranged and the programs are well built out and everything looks nice, and at what point do we forget why we're actually here? Do we forget what actual true worship is? And even in the midst of doing the acts of worship, so we think, we actually are not worshiping at all. It's a fear I have, and I think a constant question we need to ask ourselves often. Jesus is not coming to give His people better rituals. 
He is coming to restore true worship. The phrase he uses is a den of robbers, and that also comes from an old prophet, Jeremiah, of which there's a book of that. And Jeremiah reveals the true problem. It's the same problem man has always had, but them specifically, in Jeremiah 7, speaking about a similar type of people, says this, Behold, speaking to God's people, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal and murder and commit adultery? Will you swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known? And then, after you've done all these evil things, come and stand before me in this house, the temple, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. What's going on there? Well, in essence, God's people are living how they wanted, except on Sunday morning. They would go and break whatever commandments that they wanted to. They would go and worship false gods, and they would show up on the day of worship at the temple and say, oh, I'm forgiven, I'm delivered, only the next day to go back to their lifestyle that had nothing to do with God and did not look like worship at all. God's people lived how they wanted and they believed that if they went to the temple, if they showed up and performed the rituals of religion, they were forgiven. Oh, how sobering that is for any of us who believe that because we go to church on Sunday, because we sing the song, because we read the Bible, we pray the prayers, oh, I'm forgiven, and I can live how I want. Worship happens one day. Worship happens for 15 minutes in the morning. That's not worship. The temple was supposed to be a house of prayer. And prayer here is not just prayer, though it includes that. Prayer is a, a much more general term here for worship. A house of worship. It's supposed to be a place to commune with God and to give to Him worship. To declare His greatness. It had become a den of robbers. Couldn't be any more different. A den where you hide from God. And you take from Him. Well, no sooner had Jesus cleansed the temple of all the buyers and the sellers, but we begin to see the poor and the helpless become healed of their brokenness. As it leaves from being a den of robbers to becoming a house of worship, we see people being healed. Sadly, when the court was full of all of the busyness presumed necessary for worship, that's what it's for, right? This stuff is there for sacrifice. This stuff is there so they can to maintain and mediate the relationship. And yet, all this stuff that they thought was great, they thought was ritualistic and religious and wonderful, were the very things that made true worship impossible. The healings of Jesus came as the result of Jesus cleaning house. And after He cleaned house for a moment, if you think about this, everything is removed and there with the Son of God sitting in the temple, we see the original purpose of the temple being fulfilled. Men and women 
broken and helpless or coming to meet God, to worship Him and to be restored. Isn't that what we ought to do in our gatherings? We're not coming here to be entertained. You're not even coming here to be educated. You're coming here to receive cleansing and to be healed. The temple is not to be left empty, and that's why I love this picture of the Son of God sitting there, filled, that being the temple, is filled with His presence. Colossians 2.9 says Jesus was the embodiment of fullness of deity. So the temple is filled. Jeremiah, the prophet, said something I think is really interesting for all of us, and that's this. In speaking about the brokenness of the people, he said, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What does Jeremiah say has happened? Not only have they rejected and denied and refused to drink the holy, living, pure water that brings life, they're drinking from the toilet. And you can't just stop drinking from the toilet and think everything will come to life. You need to drink deeply from the living waters. And so, as Jesus cleans it out, what does He do? He fills it. Cleansing always precedes healing, although we try very hard to approach it the other way. I need healing. I need restoration. Nothing's going to happen until it's cleansed. When all the objects of false worship that filled the temple were thrown out, all you have left is Jesus alone to fill it. And when Jesus alone fills the temple, true worship is possible. And when true worship returns, we are healed. We don't find healing from better sermons or better systems or or better songs that we sing. We are healed when we remove everything and what we talk about when we are here and when we leave is Jesus. If you leave here on a Sunday morning and you think to yourself, man, that music was awesome. I thought that was a really funny joke Sam said, though I hope it's awesome and I hope it's funny. If you don't leave here thinking about Jesus, we've failed. It is His name that we are to praise. It is His name that we are to lift high. It is His name alone. And as Jesus does these wonderful things, He begins to heal the blind and the lame. Again, things that they would blow their minds. The children, unlike the educated, biblically knowledgeable, powerful leaders, the children who know nothing see everything. And they cry out the same thing that the crowds cried out when Jesus rode in on a donkey. Save us, King! That's the King! That's the King! And the chief priests are like, what the snark? And they go to Jesus and say, do you hear what they're saying? Do you hear what they're crying out? That you're the Savior, that you're the Messiah, that you're the King. Do you hear this? And Jesus' response, I think, is very powerful, though we would not know that unless we read the Old Testament. He quotes a psalm, Psalm 8. And he says, yeah, I hear him. Have you never read Psalm 8? 
which he quotes, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise. If you read Psalm 8, Psalm 8 is basically a song that says God is going to prepare praise for himself through babies. In other words, Jesus says, in quoting a psalm, yeah, I know that they're gonna, babies are going to praise God. I know that God is going to prepare praise for me through babies. Wait, wait, wait. For you, but that psalm's about God. Yeah, he's claiming to be God. And the credible thing is, he doesn't say much after that. He's like, oh, I know. They're going to praise me as God. Boom! Drops the mic, walks out. That's it. He just walks out of the city. Because as much as they have been rejecting Jesus and have rejected Jesus and will see will reject Jesus, Jesus has just rejected them. Now what does this have to do with us? Hold on to your hats. The next day, a very hungry Jesus returns to the city. It's a really strange scene that we we see here. It doesn't seem like it goes together, but I think it does. He sees a fig tree as he's going back to town. And this fig tree has only leaves on it. It's important to understand why that is and something about fig trees, which I had to look up because I don't know a lot about fig trees. Maybe you do. So if you're a fig tree expert, you should let me know that. Considering the time of year, which we can ascertain from knowing it's Passover, if there are leaves on a fig tree at this time of year, it's not the time of harvest for figs, but there should be, if there are leaves, unripened what they call green fruit. And this green fruit isn't really super tasty, but it would be eaten if someone was hungry enough. That's why it makes the point that Jesus is hungry. But if the tree has leaves and doesn't have this early fruit at this time of year, then that's a sign that it's not actually going to produce any real fruit during the actual harvest season. Though it looks like it. And so in this kind of uncharacteristically violent exchange again, Jesus like curses a fig tree. And it literally just withers into nothing. Now scholars argue about what this means and, and they have all kinds of creative ideas and I'm sure... Some of them are much more right than me, but here's how I understand it. I believe that Matthew is intending to connect the story of what Jesus did in the temple with this fig tree. And in essence, he condemns the tree for promising fruit, but for failing to provide it. It has all the appearances of what should be a fruit-bearing tree. And yet he knows that it's not actually going to bear fruit, though it looks like it should And similarly, the Jews, with all of their temple worship, with all of their rituals, with all of the stuff they have that looks like they are the people of God, they do possess religion, but they have no godliness. They have spirituality without God's Spirit. They have salvation without an actual Savior. But it looks like it. Dare I say, like many of us have looked at times, man, you look like you've got it together. You have the appearance of godliness, and yet we walk away from our Sunday gathering and live the way we want. Worshiping 
through the mechanics of ritual and never actually worshiping in our heart. Well, more than likely, the money changers and the pigeon sellers, when Jesus returned that day, had all assumed the same places that they had the previous day. In other words, Jesus didn't cleanse the temple multiple times. This is the beginning of the last week of his life, and he didn't go on Tuesday and then cleanse it, and Wednesday and then cleanse it, and Thursday, because he was making a statement and a final statement. The cleansing of the temple did not single signal its restoration, but its ultimate destruction, which would actually occur in less than 40 years in A.D. 70. It would be gone. In many ways, that temple was beyond restoration, and it needed to be replaced. In many ways, though it had not been destroyed physically, it was already destroyed spiritually. See, for hundreds of years, through the sacrifices of lambs and bulls and goats and birds, God had dwelled with Israel. But this was not the restored relationship that God ultimately desired. The relationship like He had in the garden. Where man and woman were in the presence of God and enjoyed His fellowship. When Israel had fallen into idolatry multiple times throughout the Old Testament, They were, multiple times, conquered by various nations, but during that time, God did speak to His prophets about a day. We see it in multiple prophets. A day when He would dwell with them again. And in the book of Ezekiel, which is another prophet, it says, My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be My people And then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. I will build a permanent temple. If you think about it, what that says is this. God says, actually, we still need a temple. We still need a mediator. We still need a sacrifice to bridge the gap. But men's efforts clearly to worship always fail. Enter Jesus. Jesus, full of the glory of God, came, and according to John 1.14, which says, the Word became flesh and He dwelt among us. He came to dwell with His people. Jesus, according to Colossians 2.9, was full of the glory of God. This is the same glory we see in creation. The same glory that was seen redeeming Israel from Egypt. The same glory that fell on top of Mount Sinai as God met Moses there. The same glory that had filled the tabernacle. The same glory that had filled the actual temple. And the word dwelt from John 1.14 is actually the word tabernacle. Echoing back to the same tabernacle that God had first built. Jesus not only came to dwell though with His people, He actually came to die in order to build that permanent new spiritual home. That temple. We see that in Hebrews 9, which is full of temple language. It says, when Jesus appeared as the high priest temple of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands that is, not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places temple, not by the means of blood and goats and calves, but by the means of His own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. And then when Jesus died, a 
passage we don't often read in Mark chapter 15. The moment he died, the curtain of the temple was torn. It was about yay thick and super high and was torn from the top down by God Himself. Though men in the garden had torn their relationship with God, God the Father tore His own Son from the glories of heaven and He literally tore His Son to pieces on the cross and then finally tore the curtain Himself to restore worship and build a new temple, a new permanent house of prayer, not built with hands, but actually in our hearts. There is now a temple for those who believe in our hearts, and we worship God now, not through actual temples, not through rituals, but we truly worship through faith in Christ. We enter into the presence of God in a very tangible way, in the same way that the priests went in and experienced the glory of God. We do that through faith in Christ. Hebrews 10, again with temple language, says it again, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, right, the temple where the presence of God is, we have confidence to enter into the presence of God by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened to us through the curtain temple, that is through His flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. Our worship is no longer primarily external. What externally we see of our faith lived out is worship that's coming from the inside out. It's worship that begins in our hearts where the Bible says, now the temple exists. It is through faith in Christ that we actually worship, that we actually experience and and enter into the presence of God. And so, as we take the picture of what Jesus did in the temple, what Jesus is doing in our hearts, we see this, that through faith, Jesus stands ready to cleanse us. What does 2 Corinthians 6.16 say? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. We are the temple of the living God. What do we have to do with idols? In his epistles, the Apostle John tells us that we get ourselves dirty often with idols. This whole letter, at the very beginning it says, we need to confess that we are sinners and that our hearts are full. And the very last verse of his first epistle is, children, be aware of idols. The truth is, as the temple, we fill our hearts with things that like robbers steal our affections from Christ. Some of these things are bad. Bad things that just really aren't that important. And then some of these things are really good that have become too important. These things that give us hope. More hope than we have in Christ. These things that we find our value in. Our significance in. These things that bring us joy. And it's not that things won't bring you joy other than Christ, but it's What is your ultimate joy? Where is their ultimate hope? Because if your hope right now can be taken away, it's not Jesus. John reminds us that we are to confess our sins 
in 1 John 1.9. Why? For Jesus is a faithful priest who is perpetually cleansing us of our sins and purifying us. So through faith, Jesus does stand ready to cleanse us. And through confession, we are cleansed as we confess what He already knows is there. He is the only one that can remove those idols. He is the only one that can cleanse. And that's something to remember. We all have to get to a point where we say, I can't just white-knuckle myself to cleanliness. And we come before Jesus and we simply say, clean me. Cleanse me. Because my heart is full of bad things and it's also full of some good things that have become too important. And as we are cleansed through faith, Jesus stands ready to heal us. He doesn't just cleanse us. He's perpetually renovating us, both individually and corporately. That's what the Bible says. Ephesians chapter 2. It says, We are no longer strangers and aliens, but we're fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone in whom, Jesus, the whole structure being joined together, what does it do? It grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We are still being built. We are being healed. We are being restored after we are cleansed. This is more than just a little paint. A little more than just washing the windows. In order to look like Jesus, there's going to be additions, there's going to be subtractions, there's going to be modifications. He's in a clean house and go, we need to change some things. We are individually and corporately a redeemed work in progress. And Jesus knows that and you should take comfort in the fact that He says, I began the renovation project and I'm going to finish it. It would be very appropriate for us to wear hats and t-shirts and say, under construction always. Because that is how we are. As a work in progress, we're not complete. And that's not saying that we're deficient as much as it's saying, you know what, the Spirit has actually given us all the materials that are necessary to complete us, and He is just working. And as He does, we do have parts of our lives that are unfinished. We have parts of our lives that are exposed and weak and even ugly in the midst of this building process. But slowly, as we spend time in the presence of the Lord, slowly our faith and our faith family begin to take shape as we are built and we become more beautiful and we begin to function as God planned us to function. He stands ready to heal us. But that's not where He's done. Through faith, Jesus stands ready to send us. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says this, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You should wake up in the morning every day, look in the mirror and say, you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. We are cleansed and we are empowered to move mountains. Not to just sit and say, we're clean, isn't this great? I'm clean, I'm healed, that's it. No, you are called to know God and to make Him known. And as you are cleaned, as you are healed, as you are empowered, you can do what seems like impossible. 
The cleansing of God leads to the healing of a God, which leads to the strengthening and empowering of God to do His work. This is worship. Worship is not ritual and stuff. The mechanics of religion. Worship is when you enter into a deep satisfaction in the glory of God, which leads to a very wide reflection of the glory of God. You worship from the inside out. And Romans 12.1 says, look, as you live, these are your sacrifices. This is your act of worship. So as we worship, you become a husband who worships, a father who worships, a mom, dad who worships, an employee who worships. It encapsulates everything. Not just a Sunday morning, not just a Bible study, not just your devotional time. You become characterized by someone who knows the presence of God, who constantly is being cleansed by the presence of God, healed by the presence of God, empowered to do something through the presence of God. So as we close, when you read a passage like this, I think it's certainly valid and natural and, yes, important to ask if our church has a reputation as a house of prayer or a den of robbers, a house of worship or just an institution doing stuff for itself and for others to consume. Are we a gathering of givers or are we a club of consumers? Are we a family of faith or are we a people with a bunch of cool programs? Those are good questions. And one I probably ask more than you do. But considering that there is a spiritual temple that resides in us, perhaps you should stop looking outside at what the church is doing and start looking in your own hearts. And we start asking questions like, am I a house of worship? Or am I a den of robbers? Am I here to hide from God? Or to be cleansed through confession? Am I here to pretend that I can see and I get all figured out? Or am I here to admit that I'm blind? I can't walk on my own. Am I here to prove my righteousness? Or are you here to receive the only place where true righteousness comes from, which is Jesus Christ? I pray that you're here to be cleansed because you know how full your heart is of stuff that ought not be there. And I'm here to compel you that Jesus is the only one that can kick it out. He's also the only one that can heal you, but once He does, He has something for you, and it doesn't stop on a Sunday morning. It extends into your home first, in your neighborhood, and then I don't know where it's going but it's going to be moving. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for all that You have done for us. Lord, we recognize that our hearts get filled with stuff that we believe actually creates worship or maybe even helps us with worship, but in truth it distracts us from it. Some of these things are bad and some of these things are really good that have become way too important to us, Lord. So I pray as a people that You will help us to worship. And I know that will require us to confess and for You to cleanse and remove the things from our heart that, that only You can. And we ask for healing. Healing that only You can do. We ask that You will open our eyes so that we can see. You will help us to walk where we cannot. 
that You will empower us with the presence of God that dwells in us. And You will make us a people who proclaim Your name not just by our words or our songs or our singing on a Sunday morning, Lord, but by our entire lives. By how we love and how we give and how we serve and how we speak even of You. It is in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, whom we pray. Amen.